0: Joining me this afternoon uh, for this recorded session is uh, Dr. Evelyn Fruchette, who is in town to talk about basic income as a strategy for eliminating poverty in Peterborough and indeed across the country. So welcome, Evelyn. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, to get us started, I was wondering, could you give us a, uh, there's a brief sort of non-economist definition, uh, a Coles-Notes definition, if you will, of what basic income means. In a nutshell, what are you advocating and what do our listeners need to understand, for starters?
1: Well, I think when people talk about basic income, they have one of two very different concepts in mind. Um, so if you listen, for example, to Andrew Yang in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, or to many European advocates, they would argue that a basic income means giving the same amount of money to everybody every month. That really doesn't fly very well in Canada, and usually when we're talking about basic income, what we mean is a a program that targets support at the poorest Canadians. It runs Mm -hmm. very much like the Canada Child Benefit for adults. So if you have no income from any other source, you get the full benefit. And as your income increases, if you work, for example, and earn money, the benefit declines, but it declines less than proportionately. So by the time you you reach middle or upper income levels, um, the benefit virtually disappears. And I think what makes it different from provincial income assistance is really twofold. It's available both to people on... Income assistance, but it's also available to people in the workforce, low wage working people. And secondly, the program depends only on your income. So there aren't a lot of other requirements. You're not required to demonstrate that you've submitted 30 applications, for example, in a month. You're not required to meet with your caseworker on a regular basis. It depends solely on your level of income you need.
0: Great. Thank you. Now, I should have mentioned at the beginning, also joining us is uh, Jason Hartwick, who's the co-chair of uh, Basic Income Peterborough Network. Welcome, Jason. Thank you for sitting in here. And and please uh, keep me honest in terms of any local comments uh, so so that uh, (laughs) Evelyn gets an accurate picture. Now, I did uh, do some prep for our talk this afternoon, and I watched your interview that was on TVO with Steve Paikin. And in that interview, you said that Canada could bring in a national basic income program for about $23 billion, or, or 6% of our total national program spending. This sounds quite doable, uh, <laughs> as you say in the interview. But when your ideas run into political opposition, how do you respond to the critics who say, "Ah, oh, you know, we can't afford this?
1: Well, fortunately, those numbers aren't mine. They were generated by the Parliamentary Budget Officer. <laughs> well, that's and, uh, credible. Yeah. Yeah, he has a little bit more credibility than I do, yeah. so we'll take his numbers at face value. What he said was that, um you know, net of other program expenditures that could be rolled into a basic income. It will cost about $43 billion to roll something like the Ontario basic income pilot out across the whole country, except that the provinces are already spending $20 billion a year delivering... Provincial Income Assistance, so if we can eliminate that, the net cost would be $23 billion a year, and, um, you know, $23 billion, it's hard to know whether that's a lot of money or a little bit of money, but in fact, it's exactly the amount of money we spend every year delivering the Canada Child Benefit, and we've decided we can afford that. It's less than half of what we spend on pensions for seniors every year, and we've decided we can afford pensions for seniors. Right. So this is a number that, you know, if we decide we want to provide a basic income, we can do it.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, in your introduction uh, that uh, it would be scaled so that the more money an individual or a family earns, the less it would be. Do you have any sort of ballpark idea of uh, at what point would people cease to get basic income? In other words, would it stop at 50000 60, Is 60000 Are there numbers out there yet?
1: Well, it depends very much on the design. Um, sure. the, the more people you'd like to include in the program, the slower the tax back rate. So, right. um, The Ontario program offered individuals about $17,000 uh, $17, a year, which means that Um, By the time an individual reached $34,000, they'd no longer be receiving anything from the program.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, so it's scaled like that. Now, a national basic income program uh, would lower demands for other services, I understand from your comments, and these are the services that are currently being accessed by vulnerable people. If everyone had a safe place to live, what other demands for service would diminish? For example, would we say, when I say we, I mean provincial and federal governments, taxpayers ultimately, ultimately, would we save money on policing, social services, health services, mental health treatment, incarceration, parole services? Is there any way to
1: quantify these savings? You got it. It's really hard to quantify the savings. Oh, okay. I mean, it's hard to think of any social problem that's not made worse by poverty, right? Right. If you can eliminate poverty, you can reduce um, the expenditures we're already making to mop up the consequences of poverty. Right. So uh, we did do some work. I did some work on a, on a project that actually was conducted in Canada um, in the mid-1970s called MINCOM. Mm-hmm. And uh, this project was piloted a guaranteed annual income, mm-hmm. which is what it was called at the time, mm-hmm. um, in two sites in Manitoba, Winnipeg and the small town of Dauphin. And I found that hospitalizations declined by about 8.5% among people who received a basic income. Now, you think Canada is currently spending more than $60 billion a year on hospitals, so if we could reduce the demand for hospitalizations by 8.5%, we're looking at a pretty substantial savings. Um, Mm -hmm. Similarly, you mentioned incarceration um, to the extent that people end up in prison, and more often... They end up being readmitted to prison because when they're they're released the first time, they have no resources to get their life back on track. It's not cheap to keep people in prison, right? Right. It's not not cheap to keep kids in um, foster care system for years on end um, because a family can't provide the basic resources that they need to take care of their kids. Now, you also
0: mentioned that uh, in the Dolphins... Now, it's quite an interesting story. This data was packed away in shipping boxes.
1: That's right.
0: And you came across it, (laughs) knew what it was. was Hundreds of boxes, is that all right?
1: 1,800 boxes, yeah.
0: Uh, You went through the data, and you found that high school completion rates went up.
1: Mm -hmm. How did you
0: account for that?
1: Well, it's interesting. Remember, this is the mid-1970s, and... um, Some early work had been done on um, labor market um, participation, and one of the findings was that young men, and the language they used was young unattached males, that is young men who aren't married, who don't have children, were working quite a lot less, and I had a pretty fair idea of where I'd find them, so I did gather some data on high school registration during the period and found that there was a nice little bubble in high school completion rates. So when we say young unattached males work substantially less, we're really talking about 16-year-olds who decided to stay in high school for another year or two years instead of working full-time. Why did I think that happened? I actually found some of the participants in the experiment, and I asked them what was going on. And I was told that... um, in low-income families, boys in particular were encouraged to become self-supporting as quickly as they could. So they turned 16, they could legally leave school, and they were encouraged to get a job and pay their own expenses so the family's money could um, be reallocated to younger brothers and sisters. When Mincom came along and their parents were receiving support from income, some of those families decided they could support their sons in high school just a little bit longer. So we did see a big increase in high school completion rates, and it's interesting. One of the um, one of the things that we did learn anecdotally from the short-lived Ontario mm-hmm. basic income guarantee experiment was not that people were finishing high school because times have changed, but what they were doing was using the money to register in community colleges and uh, investing in their education that way.
0: Right now, the the short-lived Ontario experiment that was in Hamilton, Thunder Bay, and was it Lindsay? Lindsay, yeah. Are there any? Were there any findings coming out of that that we can say this happened?
1: Well, the experiment itself um, gathered only the baseline survey, so we only know what their situation was when they entered the experiment. Right. There is an organization, Basic Income Canada Mm -hmm. Network, which um, tried to get participants in the experiment to respond to a survey they circulated. And they managed to get 400 or 500 of the 6,000 participants in the experiment to respond. And so we have a little bit of data there. And we've also got a number of stories, um, a number of anecdotes that have been collected from people who participated in the experiment. So we don't have the kind of scientific evidence that we would have produced had the experiment continued. But we do know what people were spending their money on and what kind of a difference it made in their lives.
0: Now, how long was that Ontario study that, um, that was Doug Ford, right, that canceled that? How long was it supposed to go on for and how long did it go?
1: Well, it was supposed to last for three years. Right. Um, when people were registered in the in the project, um, they began receiving the money immediately, and they were registered on a rolling basis. Okay. So the first um, participants um, began about a year, just over a year before the experiment was cancelled, mm. and the um, most recent participants had been receiving support for only about a month. Um subsequently, Um, They were were told that the money would continue until the following March. So some of the participants received money for almost two years, Mm. um, some for uh, about a year, a little bit less than a year. Great. Now, are there any other
0: precedents, any other jurisdictions, Canada, the states, anywhere, that have implemented a program like that that we in Canada could learn from?
1: Well, we actually have a couple of basic income-like programs that already run in Canada. Um, The Canada Child Benefit is, in effect, a basic income for families with kids under 18. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Seniors, people over 65, receive OAS, and if their incomes are low enough, they receive the guaranteed income supplement. So we have a little bit of evidence from Canada itself. Um, There are a number of uh, countries that have introduced experiments and gathered data Finland uh, just completed an experiment, and there's some consideration of reintroducing and doing another experiment, a slightly different design. Um, There's one underway in Barcelona. The Netherlands has, at this point, six cities um, experimenting with basic income. Um, And then in low- and middle-income countries, there have been a number of projects. In these countries, they tend to be called cash transfer experiments. So these have been conducted in places like Kenya, South Africa, Malawi, Mm -hmm. um, and so on, India.
0: Okay. Well, now, are are we at a point well, – thank you for that – are we at a point where we could say that such a program, if implemented in Canada – and I realize the design specs haven't been fully worked out yet, but based on the experience of, uh, in other, other places, can you say that this program saves enough to, in effect – Pay for itself in the long term.
1: That's a hard call. I mean, I think you yeah. need to think about costs in two different ways. You need to think about mm, okay. the upfront costs of delivering the program, mm-hmm. and then you can think about the return on investment. Right. So mm-hmm. these are things like savings in the healthcare system, savings from incarceration, mm-hmm. savings from uh, child and family services, and so on. Um, the first part's easy to quantify. The second part becomes much more difficult. Sure. I think, I mean, if, if I were asked for my intuition, I would say that the, the subsequent savings are many times the cost of delivering the program. But we'll right. see those savings over a very long period of time.
0: Right. And so it's not something that uh, fiscal concern, you can hold no. up a number to fiscal conservative and say, you will get this MAC
1: can't do a cost-benefit study.
0: (laughs) Right. And and as you point out, it's longitudinal. It's maybe 10, 15 years.
1: More than that. It's actually generations. If you think about Ah, those kids, if you think about those kids who finished high school in Dauphin in the mid-1970s and compare them to the kids who left school at age 16, Right. right? The kids who left school at age 16 went to work, but they went to work in agriculture yeah. or in manufacturing. And those industries have been virtually destroyed over the right. last 40 years. Um, they would have experienced bouts of unemployment sure. and so on. The kids who finished high school, many of them went off to college and went to university. And think about the differences in opportunities that they're offering their own kids. Right? Mm. Think about where their kids are starting from. So we're going to see that over a very long period of time. The opportunity to invest in education, the opportunity to invest in very young children, is going to bear fruit over a lifetime.
0: Right. Okay. Now, you said uh, in uh, I believe it was the interview with uh, when you were on Ideas uh, on CBC, you mentioned that uh, in your work as a health economist, sometimes when you're uh, you're walking around hospitals. You get the feeling that the disease you're treating is poverty. So, what what are the health implications of doing nothing, of proceeding as we are now? In, I mean, some would argue with my my cruel generalization here, but sort of a sink or swim approach to economy.
1: Well, we currently do a fairly good job, I think, of delivering health services. Some people would argue, but we deliver health services reasonably well but when you think about what actually causes illness Mm -hmm. what actually causes um, poor health conditions there are a number of social conditions that bear on that so the poorer you are the more likely you are to live in dangerous neighborhoods um, to work in hard and dangerous jobs Mm -hmm. to um, to uh, live in poor housing and to suffer accidents for those kinds of reasons your diet's less likely to be a good diet Um you don't necessarily have the resources to take care of chronic conditions so you're not paying for gym memberships um, right you know you, you don't have the resources that um, somebody with a little bit more cash you don't need huge amounts of cash to take care of yourself but you need a reasonable amount of money in order to have um, to have the capacity to provide the services for yourself and for your family um, so we see it. We see it in terms of mm-hmm. chronic conditions that affect the poorest people in their 20s that you don't see in wealthier individuals until they're in their late 40s or 50s. So you see people have losing limbs, for example, to diabetes in their mid-30s um, if they're low income as opposed to their 60s if they're higher income, 60s and 70s. So you see those kinds of complications from chronic conditions. Um, mostly it 's simply because they don 't have the capacity to um, to to take care of their health the way other individuals will um, we see um, We see accidents happening more often um, in among lower income kids, for example, mm-hmm. simply because they 're living in more dangerous housing they're living in more dangerous neighborhoods um, they're more likely to, um, to to suffer those kinds of things. So um, those are the those are the way that health is affected, I think, by um,
0: okay, s- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looking at housing for a moment now, Jason, uh, straightened me out on the dynamics of recent history in Peterborough. But we had a uh, suddenly homelessness in Peterborough became very visible this summer. A shelter closed, and there was a, 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 a sort of spontaneous uh, tent city started in Victoria Park, and then. Uh, Close to 100 people living there for much of the summer. There was a great brouhaha. And, uh, you know, local merchants complained of downturn in business. There's a seniors' residence uh, close by. They were afraid to go out in the street, and and uh, eventually uh, city council brought a new bylaw, and the county,
2: um, the county brought in a by-law. bylaw. Yeah, it was because the county the The park actually belongs to the county. It's not city property. That's part of the reason that that happened was that this county, why would they have a bylaw for homelessness? Because they don't suffer the same kind of homelessness in the county that we do in the city. Right. So it had to be brought to the attention of the county because that's – Victoria Park is theirs. Right. As opposed to the city's,
0: right? Right. Okay, so that happened. There was an eviction. (laughs) The, the campers moved to other parks, including uh, United Church Park, just uh, uh, a few blocks north of uh, Victoria Park. And then the cold weather arrived, and now it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. Now, the city did open an emergency shelter in the library. Uh, what impact would basic income have on providing housing for that population?
1: Well... The reason most people don't have housing is because they don't have the resources to pay rent. So um, simply giving people the resources to pay for the housing, to pay for reasonable housing, would be worthwhile.
0: Right. Now, Peterborough has, I believe, one of the lowest vacancy rates in Canada. And also we have the, uh, for landlords is a blessing, for renters is a bit of a curse. Every September we have an influx of, Relatively well-healed middle-class college and university students who, and the landlords would far rather rent to them because they're not on Ontario Works. They're not. So basic income would let those people who, right now, are in the shelter system, move up a notch. Is that right?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, I you know one of the one of the reasons that. Um, People who don't have a basic income lose their housing is because they don't have income that is um, dependable, that's predictable. And I I think a reasonable level of basic income makes it much more likely that people can pay the rent, and therefore landlords become much more likely to um, make housing available to them. And it's also the case that if more people have more money, if the demand for housing increases and there's money behind it, um, more housing will become available. People will find rooms in their houses that they're prepared to rent out. People will invest more in housing. So the shortages themselves will respond to increased demand over time.
0: Okay, Jason, uh, for you, what is going on in Peterborough with the basic income interest? I know you're part of the network. What, what action or what activities are going on right now? Huh. Well, we've
2: brought Dr. Frasier to speak. <laughs> <They are. laughs> uh, we, uh, we do our best to make sure that people know as much as we can inform people of. I mean, that, that there's not – unfortunately, with the pilot canceled in, in, in Ontario, there isn't much more we can do except keep the conversation going and ensure that people know as much as possible. Um Which is difficult, I mean with uh, in a town like Peterborough you've got such a a cross section of people from the people that are living in the shelter system all the way to people who have a great deal of money you know and and it's difficult to speak in the same language to to yeah. those different groups of people they speak <laughs> completely different languages They they have. Mm-hmm. An amazingly different uh, viewpoint on the world. They have it is so. We do everything we can to ensure that uh, when we speak about basic income, we speak in places where everyone is comfortable. We speak in ways that everyone can understand what we're talking about and and where it's going to go, and that we cover as much. Um, um, Sue Hubay and I probably know almost as much as most of the people in in the Basic Income Canada Network because we have to speak to so many different groups about basic income that we have to be able to speak in terms of money. We have to be able to speak in terms of uh, social determinants of health and, you know, like there's Mm -hmm. all of this that we have to try to keep ourselves as educated on as possible.
0: Okay, now in terms of... One of the intangibles, um Evelyn, could you talk to the point that, uh, I have heard people make saying, uh, and the language goes something like this, well, my grandparents worked hard all their lives, my parents always worked, I've, al- already, I've always worked hard, no one should be paid to sit at home and
2: be lazy.
1: Most people would not choose to sit at home and be lazy given the opportunity to work. I think that the economy's changed rather dramatically since my well. grandparents were working, certainly since yeah. my parents were working, and since I got my job. I mean, I, I am a tenured professor. I make a great deal of money. Um, Doing a a fairly comfortable job, doing a very nice job. My students aren't graduating and getting the same kinds of job I had. They're being hired as contingent workers by universities, being asked to teach five and six courses a year and being paid five or six thousand dollars a course to do it. Right. They have no job security, they have no benefits, and they have no opportunity to move ahead. So yes. this is an example from my world. It's a very middle-class example. Sure. We see the same thing with a lot of other middle-class jobs that are being yeah. de-skilled, that are being replaced um, by machines or being replaced by lower-skilled labor. Think of pharmacists, community pharmacists, mm-hmm. who are being replaced not only by pharmacy technicians but by robots who count the pills uh, for them. So, I mean, there are a lot of middle-class jobs that are heading in that direction as well. Docs, I mean, I, I work in a medical school. Docs are being replaced by robots who can do surgery in many cases much better than a human being can.
0: And then there's Dr. Google.
1: There's <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Google, who at least creates a demand for the docs. But, I mean, and this is, this is true right across okay. the whole economy. So Jason a minute ago talked about um, different groups of people. But, I mean, basic income um, exists not... not only for people who've traditionally lived without in our society. It's also something that's tremendously important to middle-class and to middle-class parents who are watching their kids struggle to find a foothold in this very different and very changing economy.
0: Okay. Now, um, um, I, I'm just wondering another point, uh, and that is uh, the, uh, you mentioned the changing economy so all we can really say about the next decade is it's going to be radically different from the decade we're just about finish about done with. Um, the workplace and the job market 10 years from now may be really different from what we have. For example, what will be the impact of artificial intelligence or AI on the job market? I mean, we can safely predict that there'll be a lot of displacement. I've read that um, there may be a greatly reduced demand for truck drivers as driverless vehicle technology comes onto the market. What role might... Basic income program have in mitigating the dislocations of the job market caused by um, d- disruption of AI.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, every every transition that comes along tends to create more jobs than it eliminates. So I don't think that, I, and I'm I'm in a minority here, but I don't think that we're going to see a jobless future. But what we are going to see for a good long time is a mismatch between the people who are out there looking for jobs, the people who've been displaced, and the new jobs that are being created. So at the same time that lots and lots of people are losing jobs that they've trained for, that they have skills in, um, and that they can no longer work at, um, we're creating jobs, and we're talking about labor shortages alongside all this surplus labor. So they can't find the highly skilled, highly paid Mm -hmm. labor that's internationally mobile and is looking for these high-skilled jobs. So what does a basic income do? Well, one of the things that a basic income does is it allows people the opportunity to reskill, to retrain for different kinds of jobs. Older workers, it allows them a dignified way to ease into retirement. You know, if you lose a job at 58 and 59 and 60 years old, can you really compete with a 25 year old who's prepared to do your job, to do, do your job for a lot less money? So, I mean, no. it, it eases those kinds of transitions in the workplace and um, offers opportunities. It also, I think, gives us an, a chance to the extent that maybe we don't need quite as much hard physical human labor that we've needed in the past. It also gives us an opportunity, I think, to rethink what we mean by work in society, to revalue some of the work that doesn't get valued very well by the labor market. So this society rests on people who are prepared to do all kinds of volunteer work, all kinds of caring labor. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't get paid for that. (laughs) Right. It's not a way of making a living. So what it does is it, it weakens that bond between work and um, the means of subsistence, right? You should risk sure. res- a basic income, gives you at least the very basic means of subsistence independent of work. But you can still do good work, and that work can be valued, um, mm-hmm. even though the job market doesn't put a high value on it and doesn't pay you a high wage in order to do it.
0: Right now, uh, right now is between early November and December 21st in Peterborough, there's uh, what's called the Precarious Art Festival, uh, which the arts community gathers together and their plays, their readings. I was at a panel discussion last night on arts and aging and so on. Um, I could see a basic income being uh, having a hugely uh, positive effect
1: on the arts community. I think if you think back, you know, two or three or four hundred years ago, All of the great scientific achievements, all of the great artistic achievements in in modern European history didn't come about from people who were getting a wage for working. I mean, they came about because of people who essentially had a basic income, because they came from wealthy families, or because they had patrons who were prepared to give them a basic income, so they had the freedom to create. So I can imagine a much different kind of a society, a society that valued that kind of creative activity.
0: Yes, and I'm always amazed when um, these people in the arts community uh, talk about money and talk about what they live on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's incredible how, how low the incomes are. And yet, year after year, uh, Peterborough, I mean, we're quite blessed. There are a number of theater companies, there's a few film festivals, there's quite a local music scene, and so on. And it keeps ticking on. But my understanding is it is, as the name implies, implies very precarious, and that people can't make plans beyond next next month. Okay, so for other aspects of this, um, what, how do you deal with the criticism that, well, if we give people money, those who are abusing alcohol and substances are just going to sink further into it. They will sit at home, and we'll have even more addiction. What, what's the evidence?
1: Well, I don't think we ever cured an addiction by depriving people of the right to eat and <laughs> the way, yeah. the, the, uh, the access to basic housing. Um, I, I, You know, I've spent a lot of time in the last little while talking to kids who are aging out of the foster care system. Right. And many of these kids find themselves at 18 in Manitoba. They find themselves at 18 totally unprepared to live a reasonable life without any resources and uh, one of the reasons they find themselves in situations where drugs are widely available is because they don't have the resources to um, to live in decent housing to pay their rent they might end up living with people in unsafe situations and I mean I, I, I you know I, I don't I don't think you cure addictions by by um, by forcing people to live on inadequate incomes. And I don't think that giving people access to resources necessarily makes makes them less likely to uh, to make good decisions about their lives.
0: So what do people do uh, in the jurisdictions that have experimented with this? What do people do with the sudden gift of time? In other words, they no longer have to um, be panhandling, uh... Their basic needs are taken care of. What happens to their time use?
1: Well, interestingly, most people are working. Most poor people are working. Most people who receive a basic income are working, and if they have a real job, they just continue working. They don't tend to work a good deal less. Um, People are freed up. Some people are freed up to do other kinds of work. So I imagine that there are people who...
0: (laughs) Well, that's a good one, too. (laughs) What about that? What do they do with their money?
1: Well, I think one of the things we learned from the Ontario experiment is that people spend their money in ways you might expect them to spend their money. They uh, pay down debt. They uh, rent better housing. They buy better food. They pay for activities for their kids. Many of them um, invest in education. Um, So they spend their money in reasonable ways. How they spend their time is a little bit harder. Um, For me to answer, I suspect that for most people there's very little difference in terms of the way they're living their lives because most people are working um, and most people continue to work after they receive a basic income. But I I can imagine that there are a lot of people who spent a lot of time before they received a basic income just trying to make ends meet, just going from appointment to appointment to appointment Mm -hmm. to access the basic resources they need for themselves and for their families. And I imagine a very different kind of a life that they can live if they can actually spend that time taking care of their kids and taking care of their family and taking care of themselves and um, making long-term plans. Imagine having the freedom to be able to think about what you were going to do a month from now or three months right. from now and to make to make some plans to improve the situation you found yourself in. So I think the gift of time in some ways is um, for for the poorest recipients of the basic income the most important um, the most important consequence of the basic income. Right Jason,
2: uh, sorry, I was that? I seem to remember. That was something also that came out of Manitoba, wasn't it? That you found that many women left the workforce and there was that same criticism of, all oh, these people aren't working, but what was actually happening is the women were going home to take care of the children and the men were going to work. Have I missed something there? I'm just thinking of, in terms of time, that is definitely a good answer for that is that you know, they're making parents, two-parent families are able to make a better choice for their children okay. in terms of using that time, to me anyway. Yeah.
1: Well, that, was, that wasn't quite what happened. Oh, um, women women in the Dauphin study were, were much more likely to reduce the amount of time they worked. But when we looked carefully at it, it was mostly women who were, um, using the money to buy themselves longer parental leaves when they gave birth. So if you think back to the 1970s, maternity leaves were about four weeks. And a lot of women thought that, you know, four weeks is not really a long time when you give birth. And so they were, um, they were using that to buy themselves, um, buy themselves additional parental leaves. And we've subsequently decided as a society that, you know, allowing parents to spend a little bit more time with their newborns is really a very positive thing from a social point of view. It's good for the kids. It's good for the families. It's it's a very positive kind of a thing.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. Now, we've just finished a national election, of course, and there were... Uh, I won't get into the, the nature of that debate during the election, but suffice to say that... Uh, Maybe not enough discussion of things like national uh, basic income programs, but there there were a few things mentioned. Pharmacare came up. What Could you say anything about the politics of basic income in Canada right now? Is it still a fringe idea? Are more people looking at it? What about the federal parties? Are you in a position to say what the level of support is?
1: Well, there were two federal parties that did have something to say about basic income. I believe the NDP wanted a national pilot and another experiment. And the Green Party, at least at one point, claimed to support a basic income, but it wasn't entirely clear to me what they meant by that.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I think the Liberals are less likely to be talking about a basic income, but they've made a number of decisions over the past several years, I think, that are consistent with the concept of the basic income. So making the child benefit, for example, a much more generous kind of a program mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. is
1: consistent with the idea of the basic benefit. And some of the language that's being used around um, things like enhanced parental leaves is also consistent with, um, with the idea of the basic income. But I've not heard them say anything um, anything more than that. There are a number of provinces that are also looking at the idea of basic income. So during the Yukon, during in Yukon, during the recent territorial election, all of the parties were talking about a basic income. I
0: didn't know that.
1: PEI, um, they have an all-party resolution um, supporting the idea of uh, a basic income. They would like um, PEI to serve as a sort of a test site for a national basic income. Quebec and Manitoba are both talking about uh, mm. transforming um, transforming support for um, people with uh, permanent disabilities into a form of basic income. Um, so th- there are a number of investigations at the provincial level that are looking at basic income or basic income type programs. So I mean, I don't think um, I don't think that there's an explicit commitment to basic income, but I do think that the idea is it has become. Um, has become much more mainstream than it was a few years ago. And I think it's definitely um, part of the agenda people talk about when they they talk about poverty reduction.
0: Now, do you foresee the possibility of, uh, if I'm understanding your remarks correctly, a a sort of patchwork progress? Like first one city will try it, then a small province will try it, then a slightly larger province will. And so gradually it takes root until the federal government has no choice but to implement? Or is that idealistic?
1: You know, I think we'll get a basic income the same way we got Medicare. We'll get a basic income when enough people decide that the current system just isn't working any longer. And that a basic income is both the rational and the uh, just way to move forward. I do expect that there will be a sort of a gradual transition to a basic income. I can't see a, a large program being implemented all at once across the country right. in this current political climate, but who knows? I mean stranger things have happened <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know the political the political wins blow quickly i mean who knows who knows what the situation will be a year from now or two years from now
0: true now one of the things that uh, in in reading up for the program that struck me uh you said and i forget in which interview it was that um the lifespan of uh i believe it was women in the top economic bracket mm-hmm. is 16 years longer than women in the bottom bracket. And for men, it's 15.6 or just a bit lower.
1: How would basic income change that? Well, those, those results were coming from Winnipeg, and I, I'm not sure those were exactly the numbers. It was 16 years for men, I believe, and oh, significantly right. less for women. Um, I, I think that... Um, I think one of, one of the things that um, one of the things we know from the research we've done is that the poorer you are, the more dangerous the neighborhood you live in and the right. more likely you are to undertake risk, risky behavior, right. to live in ways that put your life at risk. And so for men in particular um, and for very poor men in Winnipeg, um, just simply living from year to year can be a very dangerous activity. And so the 16-year gap in lifespan has to do with violence that people face in their neighborhoods and in their homes. It has to do with chronic conditions that attack people much earlier Mm -hmm. among the poorest populations than among uh, wealthier populations. It has to do with um, the quality of life that they live in many ways, um, the quality of the housing they're living in, the quality of the diets that they access. The nature of the jobs they do. Um, And it has to do with the tremendous amount of stress that people live with when their incomes are very, very low. So that 16 year gap is reflecting all of the social ills that -hmm. exist in Winnipeg. It's reflecting racism. Yes. It's reflecting um, just outright violence and poverty, which is not independent of racism. It's um, reflecting Differences in opportunities and differences in basic resources. Tremendous differences in the kinds of lives people can live.
0: Now, what about uh, another area of uh, concern and uh, a great deal of um, propaganda, for want of a better term, from across the political spectrum? What about crime rates and recidivism? Mm -hmm. What happens to that when we see the impact of uh, basic income.
1: You know, I've been talking to a lot of people in the last year or so um, who are going through transitions in their lives Mm -hmm. and asking them what kind of a difference a basic income might make in their lives. And one of the groups of people I've been talking to are people who've been released from federal prisons and provincial jails. Right. And um, one of the things I hear is how difficult it is to reestablish your life when you have no access to resources. So you're released from prison right. and you have very few opportunities open to you. It's very hard for you to get a job and all kinds, for all kinds of reasons. You have no resources to reestablish your life and it becomes almost impossible not to get sucked into the kind of life you were living before you were in prison the first time. So I think one of the things that a basic income does is it gives you a second chance. And if you need it, it will give you a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. And many of us need a lot of chances at (laughs) many points in our lives in order to get things together. People do make bad decisions. There's no question about that. Uh, Basic income gives you an opportunity to stand back and reassess that and to learn from your mistakes, to learn from Mm. the decisions you've made and to realize what the consequences are. And again, to engage in that kind of long-term thinking about what the consequences of um, the decisions you're making might be. So I I think one of the things that a basic income does is it will allow people who are coming out of prison to make different choices going forward.
0: Ah, okay. Now, as you look across the country and do your research, what gives you hope? I mean, in other words, (laughs) what keeps you going to work in the morning and uh, keeps you writing uh, your book is. Is out now, of course, in 2018. What, what gives you uh, what you, keeps your fires burning?
1: You know, when income, um took place in the mid 1970s, there was a little flurry of interest in guaranteed right. annual income, and it sort of went underground for many, many years. Sure. And when I started working on basic income in about 2008, just over a decade ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, There weren't a whole lot of people at that time talking about basic income. And during the context of my work, things have changed tremendously. I mean, I think we've seen this resurgence of interest in basic income from so many quarters in so many places around the globe and within Canada. And we've seen the introduction of basic income tight programs like the Kennedy Child Benefits. So we are seeing progress. Mm-hmm. I think that we're seeing a broader social understanding of things like the social determinants of health, like, mm-hmm. like the, um, the social determinants of crime. The you know, the, the, We're better understanding how we generate the outcomes that we're living with through the decisions we make. And I think that at the very least, um, we're asking a whole lot of people to rethink Um, how it is we give people opportunities in this society. Hmm. And so that's a very positive thing to me.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'd love to know, I mean, you're a university professor. Uh, you're standing in front of a classroom, 20 or 30 young people, very interested in the field, knowing your expertise. Uh, and I imagine uh, quite a few of them would be motivated to carry your ideas forward. What do you counsel them to do in terms of... Uh, Next steps. Uh, wh- wh- where is there leverage in the system to create change? I mean, as you said, we're not going to have a national basic income program starting 1st of June, you know, or, or January 1st next year. You know, it's going to be a long-term process. But where are the points of, of flexion that the next generation could, could uh, really take advantage of
1: well, I hope it doesn't take a whole generation. <laughs> we have, um, I think, I think that we can work at a number of different levels. I think we have to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of different levels of government. For example, Right. it would be very easy for the federal government to bring in a national. Yeah. Well, easy might not be politically easy, but fiscally it would be easy for the federal government to bring in a, um, a federal basic income that sets a floor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are probably a couple of provinces, maybe Ontario is one of them, that could run a basic income-like program. My province, I'm from Manitoba, my province certainly can't afford to introduce a basic income program, right. but we do in Manitoba have a program called Rent Assist, for example, right. which is a very small-scale kind of a basic income. And I say it's like a basic income because we call it Rent Assist. We don't use the words basic income. Right. But people don't have to... Um, don't have to be renting to get it. The amount of money they get depends solely on their income. Mm-hmm. They get the money, they can spend it any way they want, just as they can the Canada Child Benefit. And that's a very positive kind of small-scale thing that even even one of the smaller provinces in Canada can undertake. We're doing a similar kind of a thing called, um, at least recommending a similar kind of a thing called... Um, a basic needs benefit, which will operate in much the same way. So I think it's possible to get sort of aspects of a basic income, even at the provincial level, even in the smaller provinces. And even if you think municipally, there are a number of different kinds of programs that are consistent with the idea of a basic income. So, I mean, once you recognize that a basic income is not a replacement for all other social programs, it's one of a number of social programs that makes people's lives better. It's easy to look at it and to say, well, what is it about basic income that I find so attractive? I like the idea of there being no stigma. So how can I take the existing set of social programs we have and remove the stigma that's attached to it? Right. Right? I like the idea that it, it's not cut off dramatically at a particular point, but yeah. it, 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 yeah. um, it, it's gradually phased out as your income increases. Well, how can I transform the existing programs we have to make it look more like that? how can I eliminate some of the conditions and rules and regulations that make it so hard for people to access the resources that we actually have in place? Can I, can I streamline it? Can I have one point of entry that brings many of these programs together and makes people's lives better? Right. So I think it's possible to start where we are and mm-hmm. to make a number of changes um, and, and, and to improve people's lives.
0: Now, thank you. Now, is it possible to sort of reframe what we've been talking about and put it through sort of a municipal lens and saying you don't have to you, we don 't have to wait to till, till all of Canada goes in a basic mm-hmm. income program. You can make progress right in your own municipality. Uh, are there cities that are doing interesting things in Canada or elsewhere that deserve mention and credit?
1: There actually are several cities in the US that are experimenting with um, basic income payments. Oh. So there's the Magnolia Mothers' Trust in Mississippi, which is looking at a number of low-income mothers um, okay. and making a basic income available. Um, there's a bit small-scale project in Stockton, California, that's uh, making money available. And there's several large cities that have projects in planning stages um, where they're planning to introduce uh, benefits, um, um, hopefully going forward. So there is experimentation that's taking place. It becomes more difficult for a municipality to do that without tying it to something like housing or specific benefits, simply because uh, cities don't have the same kind of ability to tax that the federal government does or that the provincial government does. So they're operating with much smaller budgets Mm -hmm. and... And besides, people move. <laughs> you know, yeah, San Francisco exactly. were to introduce a basic income. I'm not sure what would happen to the population of other cities near San Francisco.
0: Well, <laughs> you, you, you raise an objection. I've certain, certainly heard politically that, uh, and Jason, you may uh, have run across this attitude. You know, the reason why I, I've heard this attitude, that the reason why there's so many homeless in Peter Rose because we have, Better services than most other communities, so they they come here and live off us. You know, now I mean I think there's a certain amount of mythology in that, but the dynamic you just described, if let's say Kingston adopted a uh, some sort of basic income program, um, would people in Eastern Ontario go to Kingston? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, I don't. I don't think it's realistic to imagine a city like Kingston <laughs> introducing a full-scale basic income program. Right. But uh, I mean, certainly, it's one of one of the reasons that larger geographic jurisdictions can talk start talking about larger um, basic incomes. Um, it's not something they need to worry about quite so much. Um, I think cities, realistically. Um, respond to local problems, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's not so much that people come to Peterborough because you have better services, but you have better services because you have particular issues mm-hmm. in Peterborough that need um, to be dealt with. Right. So I'm, I think that there's a great deal of mythology in the notion that people are traveling across the country in order to come to, here and... and to, to, to benefit, <laughs> and benefit from your... Benefit from your resources. Right. Now... Um,
2: you? Oh, I, I just I, I actually see it the other way around. I think um, if uh, if you look back in time, sort of, you see this sort of funny thing happen along the 401 corridor, actually going both ways, in that the amount of services and, and the uh, the quality of services actually goes up and hits a sort of a peak. But the problem is that with busing and trains and and uh, transportation the way it is for uh, poorer populations in Ontario to get from Peterborough to anywhere, there is nowhere to go from here. Yes, so i I actually I see it the other way around there There are a lot of people uh, here, who have come from other places, yes, but the reason for that is that there are no more services, that that where they came from has hit their peak of what they are capable of doing. So the reason it appears that Peterborough has this biggest problem is we're the end of the line from anywhere. Try getting to Ottawa by bus from Peterborough. Yeah, You have to go from here to Oshawa to Toronto to get to Ottawa. (laughs) <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I tr- I, yeah. yeah. and yeah. so it's. I see it slightly differently, and 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 to, to answer what you were saying, to me that actually places a responsibility on Peterborough, to be that that place that has better services. If we're the end of the line, if we're the last resort for people, doesn't that place a responsibility on us? To make sure that we can take care of those people. Sure. Rather than...
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, Evelyn, we're getting close to the end here. I just wondered um, what markers or signposts or, or signals do you will you be looking for over the next year or two that sort of shows you that, yes, things are beginning to happen.
1: I think that one of the things I'll be looking for over 2020 the Liberals have promised a national housing benefit um. I would be very interested in knowing how that national housing benefit is going to be structured. Mm-hmm. will it be structured taking into account some of the things we've learned about basic income that is without requiring receipts based solely on people's income um, you know phased out gradually as income increases yeah. or will it be an old-fashioned benefit of you know, X dollars with strict requirements and limitations, and the need to right. um, put things forward. So that's one of the things I'll be looking for. I would also like to see some real movement. Um, you know, the, the previous Liberal government I think made a good first step when it selected a national uh, selected a good definition of a poverty line, for example, and um, talked about the need to um, the need to uh, uh set goals and report on them. I'd like to see that happening over the next four years and I'd like to see some positive movement at the federal level. I guess provincially I'm watching very carefully. I mean provinces are finding themselves in an inter all provinces are in a difficult financial position yes. right now. Virtually every province is running a large deficit and they're looking at an aging population and health care costs that are ballooning over the coming years. Yeah. And I'll be interested in seeing what kinds of decisions are made between the province and the federal government about dealing with that difficulty of the provinces. Mm -hmm. I see only two possibilities. I mean, on the one hand, the federal government can hand over a lot of money to the provinces and say, you know, do what you will. Or it can take on some of the responsibilities of the provinces, like, for example, a larger proportion of income assistance, as it did in the case of the child benefit, and as it mm-hmm. is increasingly doing with certain aspects of health care. Mm-hmm. So I'll be looking at the financial relationships between those two provinces, and I'll be looking at the conversations that are happening in provinces across the country. I think... Um, I think in a whole lot of cities like Peterborough, people are starting to stand up and say, you know, this basic income thing has an element of sense to it. This makes sense to me. Mm. It's intuitively feasible. It's reasonable. Why aren't we moving on it? And I'll be interested in seeing how those conversations move forward.
0: And as an economist, you know the numbers. (laughs) Um, Can we do this? I mean, as a society, uh, be it province, uh, be it nation, can, can we actually pull this off?
1: Of course we can. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's of course great. we can. Who, right. would said, who would have said in 19, in 1960 that
0: right. we
1: could have a national health care system? Right. It was impossible. And, I mean, we certainly heard the rhetoric about how, <laughs> yeah. how, how yeah. it would be the end of the world. Yeah. And I don't think many Canadians would set that aside at this point. Yeah, I mean, of course we can do this, and I think it's the only just and fair way to move forward. I I do believe that a basic income is inevitable. I think we will end up with one. I don't know how we're going to get there, <laughs> I don't know when we're going to get there, but I I think it just it addresses too many issues. It addresses the changing economy. It addresses issues of climate change, which is going to cause immense disruptions in populations, and mm-hmm. we're going to have to figure out some way of dealing with that. Right. Um, it addresses persistent poverty. It 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 doesn't solve all of the social problems we face, but it gives us a basis from which to fight some of those social issues. It allows us it allows us a foundation to tackle problems like racism in this country and other kinds of issues that we have to face going forward. So I do think it's inevitable. I I think we will end up um, with some form of the basic income.
0: Well, thank you so much, and thank you, Jason. I uh, appreciate you setting out the time for this, and uh, wish you well this evening.:
2: well, Thank you.: very Thank much. you.